All right, you may be seated. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. My name is Trent Hunter, and I'm the pastoral assistant here at Desert Springs Church. Earlier this week, Ryan, our preaching pastor, tore an intercostal muscle, which took him down for a few days, so I'm preaching in his stead. We're thankful to the Lord that he is recovering just fine, and after witnessing the pain firsthand, I would like to personally recommend against tearing an intercostal muscle. I have no idea why he did that. Um, well, with you, I'm grateful for God's word. And I'm grateful for Psalm 29, a psalm, honestly, that I had not noticed before, but am in love with today. I pray that you would fall in love with this psalm today as well. Psalm 29, let's read it together. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Well, there are many powerful things in this world that we can conquer. We can conquer lions. We can conquer mountains. We can vaccinate against killer diseases. But of all the powerful things we can control, when it comes to a storm, the best we can do is look out for them. Take cover and get out of the way. We cannot direct a storm. We cannot stop a storm. And it has always been that way. When God decided to judge the whole world, save Noah and his family, he did it with a storm. There are explanations for storms, of course. Meteorology is the scientific study of the atmosphere. And with the formation of networks across the globe and the development of computers in the last half century, great breakthroughs have taken place in weather forecasting. We use sophisticated radar and satellite technology with computers to identify where these things show up and where we think they're going. It's always a best guess. And we all know how to check the weather when the temperature changes or when the skies get funny. We've come to expect that we will know when a storm is coming, and we've come to expect homes and vehicles that will hold up to most of them. But it never crosses any of our mind that someone out there should actually be able to stop a storm. They just come and they do what they will. Weather forecasting and shelter stake taking is still the best that we can do. Storms are life-giving, they bring rain. But they are life-taking when they bring too much or when their winds are too great. Well, Psalm 29 is a psalm of praise. A psalm of praise to the God of all 
power. The God who is above and behind and who is himself the source of all power. And in Psalm 29, we see God's power displayed in a great storms. Storms. Storms are not new. They were powerful in David's day, and modern technology has not helped us out here, has not removed their threat. A storm can lift a house and chuck it across the city. It can mangle a vehicle. It can crush a city. It can break a levee or overwhelm a river to flood an entire region. We have seen some amazing things happen around the globe in recent years, hurricanes, tsunamis. David writes this psalm in the midst, probably, of what is a tremendous storm. In it, he hears the sound of God. We find here that the Lord is the Lord of heaven, and the Lord of heaven is the Lord of the storm, and the Lord of the storm is ruler and judge of all things, and he is Lord of his people. And you and I need Psalm 29. We desperately need Psalm 29. His great power is a reason for terror and awe, but as we will see, it is also a source of supernatural strength and peace. And for that reason, a powerful storm for the Christian is a reason for great comfort, even when our lives are threatened by it. For the one who stands behind the storm is the one who has the power to keep us safe from that which is very much more terrifying than any great storm. To be sure, Psalm 29 is a psalm about the Lord and not weather. 18 times is mentioned, his name is mentioned in 11 verses. That is the name Yahweh, the self-existent one. The way he identified himself to Moses, the storm itself is about the Lord. And in this psalm, we will gain a vision of God who stands behind the greatest storms, who stands behind, yes, every other act of nature and every circumstance of our own lives. The question the psalm would have us ask this morning are two. Who is the Lord and what are we to do? These questions will guide our travel through the psalm this morning. Well, first, as the psalm opens, we see that the Lord is in heaven. Look with me me at verses 1 and 2. David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Holy is the Lord. The earth is full of his glory. Surely heaven is full of his glory. There is a movement in this psalm from heaven where God is with his angels to earth where his people are. And if God is anywhere, surely he is in heaven. And if he is glorious anywhere, surely he is there. He's above us, beyond us, eternal. In his great glory, in the splendor of his holiness is he in heaven, sovereign and supreme and great and majestic. Psalm 115.3 tells us that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. David knows this and he calls on the heavenly beings, all of heaven's angels, myriads and myriads and myriads of God's servants to ascribe glory to God. We don't use this word ascribe a lot in everyday conversation. What this does not mean is that God is lacking in strength or lacking in glory and he gets it from his angels or he gets it from us. Praise fills a need. No, this is a recognition that he is who he is. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. God is great in his greatness, sovereign over all. He is strong to do whatever he pleases without competition, interruption, or difficulty. All the glory is his glory. All the strength is his strength. 
the angels are to ascribe to him the glory that is due his name. That is the glory that is appropriate given his nature. This is obviously great glory, for he is God. His name is the name over all names. And by ascribing glory, the angels would merely reflect back to him the truth, the beauty, the love, and the wonder of God himself. Their hearts are echoing back to God what they are beholding in him, in heaven. And typical of poetry, David has repeated himself here three times, you've noticed. He says, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord, ascribe to the Lord. This is to highlight the importance of giving God glory and to build momentum. But notice in the fourth line, he says, worship the Lord. Worship here means to bow down, pay homage. Bowing represents a reverence of the heart and a kind of submission of the will to God. If ascribing communicates something of assent and acknowledgement of his glory, if that's the accent with that word, then the accent with worship and bow down here is on the submission of our wills to him, a bowing to him. David is calling for the angels of heaven to submit their whole selves to God. But why does he address the angels? Because this is just what they should do? I might assume here that David is so overwhelmed with the glory and majesty and holiness of God that his praise and the praise of God's people just doesn't feel like enough. He must call on every living being God has made. And so he names the angels. God must receive glory from every creature everywhere, including the angels of heaven. Well, what does that mean for us? Of course, with the angels, we too are to ascribe glory. That is our response to God too. And is that not what we come here to do today? We're to do this all the time, but when we come together to sing, we are ascribing glory to God, reflecting back to him, his holiness, his goodness, his greatness, his glory, his majesty in song even by listening reverently to his word, to offer ourselves, as we do every day, as living sacrifices acceptable and pleasing to him. Of course, we should not be surprised to find this talk of glory either. It is typical of praise psalms, but it is also certainly the occupation of the whole Bible to call us to glorify God in all that we do. Our very salvation is to the praise of his glory. Well, reading the first two verses may take our minds to Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, where Isaiah recounts his vision of the Lord in all his glory. You may be familiar with this vision that Isaiah has. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple, his robe representing regal glory and authority. The longer the robe, the more glory. It fills the whole room. He's surrounded by marvelous creatures who serve him. Each had six wings with which to cover their face, their feet, and to fly. They needed six to do all three of those things. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're ascribing holiness to God, ascribing glory to God. It is not the other way around, or the world would have it. And we would have it apart from Christ, that God is not great and the whole earth is full of man's glory. We are not the center of the universe, surely God is. And these visions, and as Psalm 29 puts us in our place, rightly David calls on all of heaven's angels to ascribe glory to God and to bow down before the splendor of his holiness and we're to join in with them. 
So that's verses 1 through 2. Now in verses 3 through 9, we find out what got David writing in the first place. What got his pen or whatever it was to paper or whatever it was. The Lord has revealed himself powerfully to David in a storm. The Lord is in heaven, but he is also in the storm. This is the largest section of the psalm spanning seven of the 11 verses, so it'll be our longest point this morning. And let's watch and listen together. Let's read together again, verses three through nine. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Well, this is a nature psalm if there ever was one. We've seen several of these already. Psalm 8, you'll remember, is meant to be read under a sweeping night sky. Read it whenever you want, but especially under a sweeping night sky. Read Psalm 8, verse 3 through 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The glittery starry expanse above reveals God's greatness and the wonder that it is that he cares for little us. Then there is Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is best read when the sun is out and hot. Verses 1 through 6, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. He has set a tent for the sun which runs its course with joy and there is nothing hidden from its heat. God is happy and he is glorious and the sun he has made is always talking about it. Well, David lives in God's world and he knows God made it and he knows why he got God made it, to reveal himself. And now in Psalm 29, we read of a great storm. Get Psalm 29 out next time a storm comes and read it. Let's watch and listen to this great storm together. Let's listen first. Verse 3 and 4, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The sound of the storm is nothing less than the sound of God's voice. Seven times this phrase is repeated like a drumbeat, like thunder, pealing the voice of the Lord. And this is good news. Psalm 29 is situated right between Psalm 28 and Psalm 30. Psalm 28 is a cry for God to speak, to not be silent, for him to hear our voice. Psalm 30, the psalmist rejoices that God has spoken. You see, there's a sense in which these psalms, individually written, have been put together with thought. In Psalm 29, God speaks loud and clear. His voice is thunderous, it's loud, it's terrible, full of majesty. It has the authority of a great king. Hearing it from a distance would be like the sound of an army raging, angry, mounting horses for battle. We've heard God's voice before in scripture. He used it to speak the world into existence. But then he also spoke as a father to Adam and Eve. 
And then he spoke to Moses from a bush. And after speaking to God in Sinai, Moses could ask the children of Israel, did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of of the fire as you have heard and still live? Well, that's a good question. His voice is great. And of course, this is not God's voice in the same way that the noise I'm making up here is coming from my voice. He does not have vocal cords. Thunderous booms are the clothes of God's voice in the world, along with the sounds of animals and of water and everything God made. Infinitely more powerful than thunder is God himself, who not only shakes things, but makes things with his word. And honestly, I don't think that I make a big enough deal out of creation, general revelation. Very excited about it, especially excited about his word, as we ought to be. And here we have God speaking to us in words. But even the Bible itself, God's special revelation, he specifically told us to make much of his creation. There is enough of God out there to condemn us apart from Christ. But that's a good thing when we're in Christ because we can see God's glory in it. I need to look at what God's made more, what God has made more often, and talk out loud about it to my friends, family, and to myself about how it points to God. And David surely does this. That's encouraging to read a psalm like this for that reason, at least. So we've listened to the storm and we've heard the sound of the voice of God. Now let's watch the storm. And as we do, let's watch the storm's path. Now this won't be obvious to us from our perspective over here. The place is mentioned here on the other side of the world. But if you were in Israel at the time, verses 3 and 4, you would see a storm building strength over the Mediterranean Sea, over the waters, thundering as it heads toward land. And in the ancient Near East, the sea was a sign of chaos. And here God is over the chaos, thundering over many waters, tells us that this storm was terrifying. The storm is raging as it approaches land and makes landfall at Lebanon, the northernmost part of the promised land. It moves south through the entire length of Israel and it disappears into the desert of Kadesh. That is where Israel spent her wilderness wanderings, by the way. It goes where it wants and it's powerful over places in the world we will never get. So it is with God. He is sovereign from the seas to the desert. So we've watched the storm's path. Now let's watch what it leaves in its path, what the storm does. Verse 5 The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The storm breaks. As the storm rages toward land and it makes landfall at Lebanon, Lebanon was famous for its cedars, some of them 40 feet around at the base. Could drive a truck through that if you cut a hole through it. They were sought after and carried off as pillars for great temples. Their roots went deep And the voice of God snaps them like pencils, like sticks, like they're nothing. Interestingly, in the ancient Near East, in an ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian tale, the forests of Lebanon were considered sacred to the gods who used the cedars for the construction of their own dwellings. The forests were guarded by a great monster whose name I could not pronounce. And so I just say great monster. God doesn't need the cedars to make a home like those so-called gods did. He makes the cedars himself, and his dwelling is high, high, high above the cedars in heaven. So the storm breaks. 
The storm also shakes, verses 6 through 8. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The storm shakes the mountain ranges of Lebanon and Syrian. It shakes them and lights them up so that they appear to be jumping like wild animals. The Lebanon range and Syrian ranges are opposite one another at the northernmost part of Israel. So this is a wide storm. The Lebanon range was a boulderous mountain lined with huge cedars. So as the storm shook this mountain, it was like it was a firework going off. A sparkler. This storm is so powerful as to shake this mountain. Syrian was a Phoenician name for Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is a great mountain, rises 9,000 feet above sea level. Its size is staggering. Its strength is staggering. It is snow-capped all year round, even in the hottest months, because it is so cold, so high. And God's voice makes it skip on command like an untamed young wild ox that otherwise obeys no voice. (laughs) The lightning lights up these mountains. The storm also shakes the wilderness, the desert. The desert floor shakes and rumbles and vibrates at the thunderous presence of this great storm. So the storm breaks and it shakes. And it also scares and destroys. Verse 29, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. Now in high school, this would have been one of those verses that I came across and then highlighted and quoted as my favorite verse with a chuckle. Ha ha ha, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. Isn't that random? And I had a number of these. Um, and usually when I find out the context, I just repent. Uh, there's something there for us. Well, there certainly is here. This is the God of the storm talking who makes the deer give birth. Think about it. Yes, he makes the deer give birth. When he sends a storm like this, he scares the deer into labor. And that same power just strips the forest bare, twisting, twisting the trees. He devastates the forest. Well, I have only seen storms like this and heard about storms like this on the news. I expect that's the case for most of you. But I can't help think of my own personal encounters with storms at this point. Growing up in Chicago, I can remember seeing the sky change colors. This happened about once a year, I think. Sky would change colors, it'd just get weird outside, really weird. The wind would pick up, and the tornado sirens would start going off. Mom was always in a frenzy, and Dad was always outside. But eventually, and Mom complaining about Dad being outside and telling us how we should never be outside in a storm like this. But eventually, we all ended up huddled in the corner in the basement. We had a walkout basement. And I often, during those times, wondered what the point of the thing was. If you could walk out of it, the storm could get to you through it. But half of it was underground, the other half, the yard went like this. You could see through uh, a window or a door that you could open. So you'd watch the trees through this window, and they would just wrench back and forth. Like the earth was in a dog's mouth. An angry, violent, mad dog shaking the earth, tearing it back and forth. And they think all the trees were going to rip out of the ground. Scary stuff. As you witnessed the backyard where you were playing only an hour earlier turn into a war zone, it seemed, all you could say is, wow. 
More recently, we lived in Louisville, a storm tore through town, and as soon as it cleared, I was out to investigate. A sign that stood above the road, I think it was a Babies R Us sign, uh, stood above the road on two steel poles, was twisted like this, laying on the uh, telephone wires over the road. Jeez. I have pictures of all this. The Outback Steakhouse sign disappeared into the roof of the restaurant. It needed an update anyways. You could tell the roof and the sign was faded. In about a month, you had this sweet Outback glowing sign, new colors. Uh, So I don't know if it was good for the manager or not. I should have asked. Um, Maybe that's what it took to get the new sign. Cars in the parking lots looked as if they were trashed by an angry mob with bats as chunks of parking lot concrete littered the area. It looked like a bomb went off. And as you drive around the scene like that on a street, you drive home on only hour, an hour earlier, all you can say is, wow, this is what storms do. And in the power of a great storm, we see the power of the voice of the Lord. One, one writer sums this connection up nicely. The average lightning strike is six miles long, reaching more than 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit four or five times the temperature of the sun at its surface. How we know that, I don't know. With a voltage anywhere from 100 million to 1 billion volts, consider thunder. Thunder is the sound of a shock wave created when lightning rapidly heats the surrounding air. The heated air expands explosively and compresses the air immediately around the heated area. In the area where the air is compressed, the air pressure is higher. And when the difference in pressure reaches your ear, it senses this thunder. That is all true enough from one perspective, you write. Psalm 29 offers a complementary, also true perspective. Thunder and lightning are the voice of the Lord. About, uh, this makes, uh, by the way, me seriously question the claims of one friend, acquaintance uh, in college, who claimed that they had been struck by lightning multiple times in the campus plaza. Um, I think they were slightly deceived by their own want for attention, and I guess it worked since now, nine years later, they're being cited in a public address that will be immortalized on the Internet. About three years ago, a friend of mine was making his way home from work, trying to beat the tornadoes that were apparently on the way into town. He was driving down Lexington Road in Louisville. It's a beautiful road. Most of Louisville looks like any other city, but this was a beautiful road. Old trees had grown up over the road like this to create something like a tunnel in some spots of wood and leaves. It looked beautiful at different parts of the year in different ways. Old craggy trees. The tree that a tree fell on my friend's car down that road one night as he was making his way home. It was four feet in diameter. It utterly crushed the hood of his vehicle. Had he been going a little faster or not stopped as quickly, three feet difference, he'd have been dead. I saw him on the news and I got in my car and went and drove down there. I figured it would take a while to move the tree. It utterly crushed the hood of his car. He was calm. The crew that was hired to chop the tree up by the city was clearly thrilled to be, to have landed this uh, choice log. I was asking about how often this happens. It didn't happen very often. They were on all their little machines, just sawing away, driving around. They were thrilled. How can we explain why a tree like this fell on my car? Well, in human terms, there are human factors. He happened to be there when it fell. 
in five years of coming home from work, he hadn't taken that route home, but because of a phone call he got, he missed his exit. So he ended up on that road. After the accident, he was told that, the, that he could sue the city. He didn't do it. Uh, apparently, the city is supposed to do certain things to trees' roots to control them. Uh, the roots were shallow for these kinds of trees. So a tree that's four feet in diameter and perfectly healthy could fall over. What on earth? That kind of makes sense. Other trees, I guess, in this, this road had fallen before for the same reason. Someone tipped him off to that. Whatever. Um, he's alive. Uh, these are real human factors, though. They landed my friend under a tree that night. And there are weather-related explanations. Uh, you could have seen the storm coming, right? Air pressure, wind patterns, various conditions. All of that is true, but at the end of the day, my friend was exactly right in what he said to the news camera. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the trees, weather, vehicles, and life. And his response was right. I rejoice in him that he chose not to take me home. And had the Lord done so, he would have rejoiced that he was with him in his presence, no doubt. Those words fell off of his tongue. They fell out of his mouth. Which is why when we see a storm, we do not just say, wow. Anyone can say, wow. As those who know God and his temple, we say, no, we cry, glory. Glory to a great storm that would take a tree down like that. Because we know that God is more powerful than the storm, who sent the storm, who dropped the tree, and is the only right response for the people of God to a deadly, terrifying, and destructive storm. In his temple, all cry glory. And by saying glory, we're saying, I'm unworthy. We're selling, saying, you are great and mighty and sovereign and supreme. It's saying, this is what I need, God. We know, that we know what we're looking at here. We know who sent it. We know who's in charge of it. When we turn on the news to learn of another great and terrible storm coming our way or a storm that has ravaged another part of the world, our only right response must be glory. God is sovereign over all weather. In our first years of marriage, uh, I was out of town for a week or so. A hard storm hit our town. A tornado was approaching and my wife was alone in our apartment without a basement. Um, she'd grown up with a basement, been in tornado warnings before, but this is the first time without a basement and a siren. And she called me in panic. I, uh, I could do nothing. I could pray, of course. Uh, truth is, if it went the wrong way, a tornado could have flattened our apartments. Christy recalls that while she was curled up in the hall, doing the best she could, now there were a few people gathered outside looking at the sky. And uh, of course, there will always be those people probably me included, where I'm in the same situation. A great storm is terrifying, and it is awesome to behold. God is both, and those who know him cry glory. During graduate work, I sold phones for Verizon to get through school. We sold these little air card things. You've seen them, you stick them in your computer, and they give you internet wherever you go. I met all kinds of folks on this job. It was a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun. I met ghost hunters who needed internet when they scanned homes for paranormal activity. Uh, actually, this happened twice in one day. Like, ghost hunter came in, and they needed this and explained it to me, and I thought it was awesome, and uh, sent him out with it. Um, and then, like, an hour later, someone else came in for the same reason. I guess they were in town together. They heard about a house. Uh, I met a lot of normal people 
as well. Um, and then I met some storm chasers. They needed the internet to track tornadoes. They, they bought one of these things, but then they stopped paying their bill several months later. Now, it cost me something, right, when, so uh, the, way that, uh, the way you get pay worked. So I was unhappy about that. Uh, but then I thought, well, maybe, maybe, you know, a tornado got them. Um, so they either gave up the chase or it uh, didn't end well. I don't know. I'm hoping and guessing that they just gave it up. It was a hobby. They weren't making money on it. But isn't that interesting that it was a hobby to chase tornadoes? Storms are terrifying, and they are awesome to behold. God is both, and those who know him cry glory. I remember when we moved to New Mexico, um, we had this beautiful lightning storm about a year and a half ago. You may remember it. A number of things were new. The sunsets were beautiful and abundant. And at this lightning storm, I thought, this is going to be good. We're going to have these too. And the next day, I find out that no one had ever seen something like that before, or it hadn't happened in a long time. And I remember Tim Ray, one of our elders, said to me, God put on a show last night. First words out of his mouth. And I brought it up and I thought, that is exactly right. Those who know God, in other words, cry glory. Was this your God? One commentator writes, the sentimentalist says, one is nearer God's heart in a garden. More realistic, the Bible affirms that we are also nearer his heart in a hurricane. Well, what does this storm ultimately mean? What is it telling us? There are weather forecasters out there. There are storm chasers out there. And there are storm interpreters out there. The worst of them make TV because the things that they say are especially offensive. And unfortunately, they are usually offensive and unbiblical. We've seen the Lord in heaven. We've seen him in a storm. And third, in verse 10, we see that the Lord is on his throne. This much is certainly true. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. Verse 10. When we see a great storm, we know this much is true. The Lord is enthroned over the flood. The word for flood is used seven other times in the entire Old Testament. Guess where? In the context of the Genesis flood. God is enthroned in judgment, in other words. He opened the floodgates and the earth was destroyed but for those he chose to save. And he was sitting at that time over all of that destruction and throned over that flood amid all of that devastation. And although this is mainly a psalm about God's power in a storm, the storm does reveal God's judgment. Storms that destroy are part of the curse that God placed on the world. Creation is groaning and sometimes it sounds like thunder. Sometimes it sounds like snapping cedars. The physical destruction done by a mighty storm is a little window into the spiritual destruction that awaits those who refuse to bow to this Lord and King. He is to be greatly feared. The storm is the voice of his justice. Hear it when you hear a storm. He sits enthroned over the flood. He also sits enthroned as a king forever. He's a sitting king. He is not restless. He is not shifting about. The storm moves, but God sits. The storm is here and gone, and it puts an end to the things it destroys, but God's throne has no end. It is forever. Right now, my children are concerned with who's the boss. 
occupied with who's the boss. And I'm not talking about that wonderful and beloved show. The question of who's the boss of who. And here's how we've outlined the universe for them. Christy and I are the boss of them. They are not the boss of uh, each other. They are the boss of the animals. And God is the boss of all of us. There is a cosmic pecking order. And they are proof that we are born thinking we're on top. Not wanting to be there, but assuming we are. The kids have been put in their place, I pray and hope and are being. So now the question is who they still get to be the boss over. And for now, they're happy to be in charge of the entire animal kingdom. <laughs> if, they're, if they're scared of a dog at my parents' house, their grandparents' home, I say, you're over the dog. Just tell the dog what to do. The dogs won't hurt them. Um, I hope they won't be too bold in the face of a wolf that gets loose. Um, <laughs> So, neither you nor I are the most important person in the universe. It is perfectly typical of the human condition of sin to turn Psalm 115.3 upside down. I am on earth and I do all that I please. Or to adapt the first two verses of this psalm for ourselves and live for others to see our glory and to ascribe glory to us and to call everyone else to do the same. Look at me, look at me. From as early as we can say these words, we say them. And self-infatuation is a poison that darkens our vision of God so that when a storm comes overhead, we are still looking in the mirror and we do not hear his voice in it. The Lord is enthroned over the flood. The Lord is a king forever. He is the judge. We are the judged. He rules. We are ruled. He lives. We die if we do not live in him. So when we hear a storm, we simply must acknowledge his rule. And that is our response to acknowledge his rule. This is exactly what the psalmist does here, isn't it? He experienced a storm. And what does David say? But God judges and he's on his throne and he will be forever. That is what we are to say. And acknowledging the Lord's righteous rule means rejecting any false gods that would presume to have his place. On that throne. In the context of the ancient Near East, uh, the Canaanites worshipped a storm god, Baal. The storm imagery stands on its own, of course. We can feel the full effect by reading the psalm, looking at a storm, and we cry, Glory. But the ancient Near East context, there are other explanations for storms. And this psalm was written in part to say something about God over and against false explanations. Baal was a storm god, he was the storm the thunder and the lightning. If there was no rain or storm, he was sleeping. You may remember the matchup between God and Baal in the Elijah story. Baal was thunder, but only the Lord could send thunder. And the Lord could also send rain and the sun and whatever else he wanted. This competing God was the thunder and the thunder was his voice. That's all he had. And he didn't even have that. No one worships Baal today that I know of, but the problem in the human heart that led to the invention of him and his worship is still with us. We want things to have a power of their own. New age crystals. Governments. The earth itself. Nature Psalms force us to distinguish between the world God made and the God who made the world. Nothing God made is God. He's over it all and he's separate from it all and he's greater than all of it. The Lord is enthroned over the flood and the Lord is a king 
forever. Well, when you see a storm, watch, listen, and acknowledge that God is who he is. Hear his voice. He is a king forever. Say it loud and say it to one another. But there is more to say, and that is good. You see, if our only takeaway from a storm is that God is judge, we're in trouble. Were God to send another flood like he did in the days of Noah, though he won't judge the world in that specific way again, we would miss the boat. And we would miss the boat on purpose. We would laugh as the rain started to come. We are ripe for God's judgment. And if we see a storm and acknowledge that he's king, we should know that he hasn't our allegiance if we're inside our own thoughts and follow ourselves around each day. So thankfully, fourth, we see in verse 11, the Lord is for his people. It is true, the Lord is powerful like a storm. His voice is like thunder. He is judge. He is king. He also has a people that belong to him. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. One commentator describes this verse this way. I love this. The closing word with peace is like a rainbow arch over the psalm. The beginning of the psalm shows us heaven open while its close shows us his victorious people on earth blessed with peace in the midst of the terrible utterance of his wrath. God's power makes distinctions between people. It does make distinctions between people. And for those that are his, by his grace, they are safe. In fact, the storm is a sign of their safety. For as powerful as the Lord of the storm is, is as powerful as he is to do good on his promise to strengthen them and bless them with peace. Here's what this means. You do not have to run away from the God of the storm. You can actually run to him when the storm is overhead. He can give strength. He can give peace. After all, if he is Lord of the storm, to whom else will you find go for shelter? We must ask for his blessing. See, in the second half, it says, may the Lord bless his people with peace. This is a promise, really, and it can be a prayer. Ask for the blessing of peace. This is not a trite way to end a psalm. The God who is praised in heaven and the God who rules the terrifying the storm is the God who promises to bless his people with peace in the last verse. If you are a human being, you have known restlessness and fear. You have known the feeling of deep dissatisfaction in life, how life is going, how your life has gone. You've been rocked, some of you, by the coldest of circumstances and all of us by the consequences of our own sin. You've sought happiness and peace. You haven't found it anywhere. You know you want it. You have a horrible peace detector. And you're no peacemaker. All of our relationships bear witness to that, if we're honest. You have no peace inside you. You're not at peace with others, and it's because you're not at peace with the Lord. The good news of verse 11 is that... the and of the whole Bible is that peace is God's and he gives it. And it is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's more than you might ask for. It's an inner peace in the midst of the greatest trouble. 
And, it, and he gives it to us through Christ and through Christ alone. The God who sends great and powerful storms sent his son and raised him powerfully from the dead for you. Consider the announcement at Jesus' birth in Luke 2.14. When the multitude of heavenly hosts in heaven praised God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Sound like Psalm 29? Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, to his disciples. He was the Prince of Peace. Three times after his resurrection, he says to a disciple, his disciples, Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. He brings the start of the end of everything bad. Consider his words to a raging storm on the Sea of Galilee in Mark 4.39. He rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Doing so actually confirmed his claim to be God. Interesting, right? 18 times the Lord Yahweh is mentioned in Psalm 29. Jesus takes that name for himself. That's why the angels in Revelation 5.13 can say, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And why Paul says in Philippians 2.11, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Are you restless? Come to the Prince of Peace. The peacemaker who brings us near to God by the blood of his cross, making peace by the blood of his cross. And maybe you're not a Christian and you haven't bowed to Christ. You've sworn you wouldn't and your heart is like a rock. Or maybe you're a Christian and you're dangerously resisting him in sin. Perhaps you're praying for somebody to come to Christ whose heart is like a cedar. You cannot imagine them coming to Christ. You cannot imagine them swearing allegiance to God, ascribing him glory. I have people I pray for in that category and I always remind myself, Was I in a different category? None of us were, if we know God. Charles Spurgeon spoke poetically about the gospel's power using the poetic language of this psalm. The gospel of Jesus has dominion over the most inaccessible of mortals. And when the Lord sends the word, it breaks the hearts far stouter than the cedars. It has more than equal power over rocky mountains and the mountainous pride of man. Flames of fire attend the voice of God in the gospel, illuminating and melting the hearts of men and hills of our sin leap into his grace and are buried in the sea of his blood. And all of that is true, isn't it? God, go to God for peace and find it by trusting in the peace-winning life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Ask for peace, the blessing of peace, and also ask for the blessing of power. It says, may God, may the Lord give strength to his people. When we become Christians, the Bible does not say that we should expect no trouble or struggle or trial or frustration. In fact, it promises all of that. The storms will come. The thunder still shakes your house. And now as a Christian, you may even be a lightning rod for a strike of electricity hotter than the sun at its surface, remember. But the Bible does promise that God will give us everything we need to withstand temptation and endure hardship. He gives us his spirit. This is interesting. Consider what happened when God sent his spirit at Pentecost. According to Jewish tradition, Psalm 29, a psalm about wind and lightning and God's voice, was assigned to the feast that was celebrated at Pentecost, the birth of the church. At Pentecost, there was a mighty wind, fire, and though in a different form, the voice of God. So if this is true, if this is what they were reading, 
Those who experienced the day of Pentecost would have had Psalm 29 in the back of their mind. The power of God in a great storm of Psalm 29 was now over and in them by the Spirit. And consider the prayers of the New Testament for us. Paul prays, I pray that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What kind? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. That's more powerful than a storm. Storms can take life. Who can raise someone from the dead? Ephesians 3.16, Paul says, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Whatever has been your trouble, God's peace and strength are greater than the devastation in your life. And they can overcome the trouble in your own heart, your sin and rebellion against God. I pray that it would. We have a God of all power. And in what he has made, we see the wonders of his glory and we can trust him more for it. Whatever may terrify us, however great a storm may threaten our very lives, we have a God who is over that storm, who is keeping us from his wrath in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Israel had this psalm, Psalm 29, to go to when they felt threatened by a powerful storm. And that was a great encouragement as there were many reasons for discouragement in their own hearts, in their own rebellion, in their lot, in the destruction of their temple. But they knew that you promised peace and you promised strength and they looked forward to it. And Father, we now know that strength, that power, and that peace in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and through faith that is in him. Your power that can raise Christ from the dead raises us from the dead today. Work that power in us by your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.